I'm just going to read to you now from Ephesians, which is our passage today. Ephesians 1, verse 15 to 23. So if you have your Bibles with you, it's also going to be on the screens. Um, Here we go. Thank you, Father, for your word. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I'm Richard, a member of this church, and it's my delight to have this passage to expound But wow, what a deep passage. Let's just seek God's special help. Heavenly Father, what a profound and searching passage this is. And no human preacher is going to be able to do it justice. We ask that your Holy Spirit will inspire the words spoken and inspire our thoughts. Uh, Lift up your beloved Son in our midst. Teach us what we need to learn, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Open your eyes and let's see what God wants us to see. So we're first of all looking at Paul the prisoner uh, with a short chain and long sight. Well, I'm afraid we don't know exactly the length of his chain, but we do know that he was under house arrest and chained. Uh, But that didn't stop his his spiritual imagination uh, uh, roaming far and wide. He had wide concerns, and particularly for this church in Ephesus and the surroundings. And he'd got good news for once to thrill his heart. He heard that the church was prospering, and there was tremendous spread of the gospel in that region. God really on the move here. Isn't that thrilling? The divine strategy was being worked out. God's plan to unite Jewish and Gentile believers in a global community of faith. Lives were being won and changed. The Old Testament promises were coming true before his eyes. Transformed people now and the whole cosmos later. A new heaven, a new earth. It's almost in sight now. Everything united under Christ. No sin, no death, no suffering. And what could Paul do to help forward this process? He could write this letter. He could pray this prayer. 
and we're eavesdropping on an apostle at prayer, praying with urgency, with excitement, with faith, with relief, with his heart of flame for Christ and for his friends. And we'll follow him uh, this morning. Four short headings, Paul's prayer, God's power, God's purpose, and our prayer. So let's start with Paul's prayer. Uh, All this is a prayer, isn't it? Um, He prays with thanksgiving and requests for these young Christians. He tells us that in verse 16. A newborn baby can't talk, can't walk, or feed itself. It cries does some other things as well. It's a delightful, tiny miracle. Run on the clock three years. The same? Can't walk? Can't talk? Can't feed itself? This is a complex medical case now. And Paul knows that new believers must grow or they'll die. How can he help? He wants their understanding of the faith to grow. And he prays that this will happen more and more. This is the the content of, of, of verse 17 and 18. He wants their understanding of the things of God to grow with the Spirit's help. We can't understand spiritual truths unless God gives us an insight into the things that are invisible to the natural world. We must have the right equipment. Do watch um, Autumn Watch. Um, I I enjoy those programs, and uh, perhaps especially when they turn on thermal imaging and you get some night vision and you see things that you couldn't normally see with the natural eye, foxes and badgers and owls. Or, or, Or now there's the James Webb Space Telescope, which will eventually be sending back photographs of distant galaxies by way of infrared photography. You've got to have the right equipment. And in spiritual things, we need wisdom and revelation from God's Spirit. Verse 17, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him better. Yes, the Holy Spirit works in our minds and our hearts in the very control center of our lives, which the Bible calls our heart. And there's no understanding of the things of God unless the Spirit gives insight. And so uh, here is an instruction from Paul. Open your eyes. God's Spirit explains God's Word to show us God's Son. And there are three ways particularly in which he wants these Christians to get to know him better. Verse 18a, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Hope. Understand your hope, the hope which never disappoints. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is this hope 
that we have in our hearts. Well, we were looking at this last week, weren't we? The spiritual riches that we all have in Christ. We're chosen, we're forgiven, we're adopted, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, our lives are going to be transformed forever in the presence of Christ. Hope. Does that hope thrill our hearts? We have hope because our God reigns. Life is not meaningless, nor is it out of control. In our own culture, perhaps hope is scarce. Many people think there is no creator God, no meaning to life, only the pitiless indifference of the universe. But hope should grip our hearts. A powerful motivator, hope. There was an important study made by a great historian years ago called Revolutionary Change. The writer was Chalmers Johnson. And he analyzed uh, uh, this history of revolution, revolutionary change in different societies. And he concluded this. It isn't despair that makes people press to the barricades and create a new world. It's not despair, it's hope. Things could be different. Things can change. Let's go and change them. Now, we're not revolutionaries in that political sense. But have we got a revolution of hope in our hearts? And can the world see it? My, our world needs hope. Understand your hope. And then he goes on, 18b, value your riches. The riches of God's glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, that, uh, the riches of his inheritance, it could mean the inheritance waiting for us. Christ's congratulations for his faithful people. Well done. Good and faithful servant. My, that's an accolade worth pressing for, isn't it? It could be the weight of glory that will outweigh all the sufferings of this life. It could be the glory of that renewed heaven and earth. But more likely here, it refers to God's inheritance. Understand the riches of God's inheritance in his people, his people, his church, the bride of Christ. Imagine for a moment God's delight in considering the people who will be spending eternity with him. Who are these special treasures of our God? That's you. That's me. That's fellow Christians. It's the people who belong to that wonky church down the road too. They're included in God's kingdom. They're his special treasure. Friends, fellow believers, they matter to God and they should matter to us. You matter to God. He treasures you. He values you. He wants the best for you. He looks forward to the day 
when you will be fully like his son. We dare not trash the church or belittle our fellow believers. They're part of God's treasury. And then he comes on, 19a. Understand his incomparably great power for us who believe. That's so important. I'm taking it as the next topic. But the summary, know God better. That's what Paul wanted for these Christians. That's what he'd want for us, to know God better. Think of Israel in the wilderness. They had God camping out with them in the, in, in the tabernacle. And the history of those days shows that it was dangerous to be so close to the blazing purity of God's holiness. But now, God is amongst us. Will he rob our life of delight with rules and demands? Not a bit. He seeks to bless us. We are his special possession. Open your eyes. Understand these things. And notice also, we move on from Paul's prayer. It's all part of God, Paul's prayer, but we move on to consider God's power. Have a look at verses 19 and 20. Look how Paul describes this. God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. This is the power at work in your life and mine. Resurrection power to keep us and transform us. Power mattered in Ephesus where power play was happening. There was religious power exercised by the temple of Artemis that controlled the local economy. That's the reason for the riot in Acts 19. All around there was the power of pagan thought, the influence of the occult and magic and growing veneration for the Roman emperor, and some people were toying with the idea of paying him divine honor. That was going to present problems for the Christian community later on. And there was the power of temptation in a city of sexual license. That was quite normal for a busy seaport. But it was hard to survive as a follower, a practicing follower, of the crucified Messiah, Jesus. The very idea was blasphemy to Jews. It sounded like sedition to the Romans, and it just sounded plain daft to Greeks. And Paul is saying the power at work in you is stronger than paganism or politics or even persecution. The Lord we serve is supreme. His keeping power is utterly reliable. Think of the words of Jesus in John 10. I give my sheep eternal life. They shall never perish. 
No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Believers in Jesus are held in that incredible grip. The Son and the Father, they hold you together. You are held in hands of omnipotence. And God's transcendent power is at work in us and for us. Transformational power. Couldn't God just zap away all my moral failings? Yes, he could. Scatter my sorrows, heal all my pain, cure all my diseases. Yes, he does that progressively now, but he will do so finally and completely on the last day. Revelation 21 verse 4, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That day is coming. But scripture and experience shows that the Christian life is not a doddle, but a battle. a spiritual warfare that we're all engaged in. We must learn to put to death the vestiges of our old nature. We must grow in fruitfulness through God's pruning. Praise God, his triumphant power is at work. We mustn't let the old failings conquer us. We must seek his help. And when we fall, we ask forgiveness and he renews us. Why doesn't the Lord give us instant and total holiness and deliverance all at once? Well, we learn through having to rely on him. Not I, but through Christ in me. He is faithful and he gives strength for every challenge. Notice this is resurrection power at work in us. Not to bypass death, but to rise from the grave. This is the power that raised Jesus, but it didn't keep him from the cross. We read of Stephen, that loyal witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, saw the Lord in glory. But he died under a hail of stones, and God raised him to life as resurrection power. Or think of the Chinese church that survived cultural and all sorts of other oppression during the years of the Cultural Revolution especially, and grew from half a million members to 80 or maybe 100 million people in 50 years. That's resurrection power. Or think of the Christians in North Korea suffering grievously in those labor camps and worse Faithfulness even to death. That's resurrection power. Later, uh, Philippians chapter 3, 10 to 11, Paul writes this. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection 
and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. God's power keeps us secure through every trial. I think of the, it's about a hundred years ago, Alfred Bosshart was a, uh, uh, an Anglo-Swiss missionary in China, and he was taken captive by Mao Zedong's communist insurgents on that long march, hundreds of miles into the interior. He suffered grievously, Bosshart and his colleague, a lot of abuse and hardship and danger. And on Christmas Day, he and his colleague were in a cattle shed with someone to guard them and see they didn't exchange a word. And Bosshart, with his boot, pulled out some of the uh, pieces of straw and he shaped them into letters on the floor so that he and his colleague could look at the word, Emmanuel, God with us. He describes the joy and the peace that they both felt in the midst of suffering. That's resurrection power. There's no easy triumphalism promised here. The sovereign Lord is with us to hold us for his glory. And so we come to God's purpose. His purpose is to exalt Jesus the Lord. Look at verses 20, 21. He raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Father and Son planned creation, redemption, transformation, knowing the appalling cost it involved for Jesus, humiliation, hatred, rejection, crucifixion. And we read in the Gospels of the total obedience of the Son, whatever the cost. To the disciples at the well of Samaria, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. And to his critics and opponents, he said, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me, has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And all through the Gospels, we sense the Father's sheer pride in the Son. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The Father delights to honor his incomparably wonderful son. He raised him from the grave. He exalted him to heaven. He showers him with glory. Now he's standing in the place of honor, crowned with glory on the highest throne. Just imagine the joy and the awe of all heaven as the triumphant Lord ascends to glory with the marks, the nails, in his hands and feet, the king of heaven who became the friend of sinners, the mighty son of God who humbled himself to manhood, 
servanthood, becoming a sin offering, suffering, dying the unspeakable death of the cross. We like to think it was out of love for us, and that's true to a point. But Scripture shows that the deepest motivation of the Lord Jesus was to fulfill the Father's purpose, to vindicate him. And now the Father <laughs> can't do enough for his Son. He raises him to the highest place that heaven affords. King of the universe. Head of the church. And we have to ask, is he truly our Lord too? And so we come finally to our praying. Just a few thoughts here. Prayer is effective. Paul believed it was so. Look at verse 16. He hadn't stopped giving thanks for these people. He keeps asking God the Father to give his blessing. There's no hand-wringing here. I don't know what to ask for. He knows what to ask for, that they might know God better. He's not banging his head against a brick wall. I wish I could help, but I can't get out yet. No, he really believed that when he prayed in house detention in Rome, his praying could unleash God's mighty power for them. Oh, he was an apostle, but the apostle relied on their prayers for him. Chapter 6, verse 18 to 19. He's asking that their prayers would hold him up and liberate his words when he came to give his witness to Jesus. So just think where we've been today. All power belongs to God. Our Jesus is king, high above all authority and power. And we are inside that divine fellowship of love and power. And we're invited to pray to this great God to whom we have access. I wonder if prayer is our most neglected resource. Is this why sometimes our personal lives are not very fruitful? Does this help to account for the waning influence of the church in our culture? God's ear is not closed. His arm is not lacking strength. I very easily get bored and distracted and discouraged in prayer. Is that your experience too? Group prayer helps to keep us focused. Where two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, he's present. Doesn't that help us? And the intercessions of the gathered church bear a powerful witness to outsiders. Christians pray for the needy, for victims, for the marginalized. Oh, so Christians care after all. And we pray about the insoluble problems of our world. B. 
because we believe our God is able. Climate change, you're going to leave that to politicians? Beseech the God of heaven to act. The migrant crisis, there are millions of people across the world on the move and no one knows what to do about it. God does. Knife crime. What a scandal and a sorrow in our country. Who knows what to do about it? God does. We can't tell him the, the, the policies, but we can bring him the problem. World flashpoints. We can pray for God to defuse them. Think of the heartbreak of Starving Afghans this winter, especially starving children, we can pray. And God can help. God can intervene. We can pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. What a thrilling privilege we have to share with our God in running his world. Revelation 5, 8 refers to prayer.